This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, Katrina Hale and I talked about birth planning for a surrogacy birth. You might be thinking that surrogacy birth planning is just about who cuts the cord and who uh, has the first skin-to-skin cuddle with the baby, but actually, like all things in surrogacy, it can be a lot more complex. So we talked about how to navigate the hospital system and policies and personalities, um, things like birth education and parent craft support for the intended parents, who will be in theatre, if the uh, surrogate has a caesarean and whether or not the hospital will be able to accommodate the surrogate and the intended parents. We also talked about surrogacy birth photography and milk and feeding of a surrogacy baby. If you're after more information, you can find that on the blog. You can also download a free hospital surrogacy policy if you think that will help. And if you need any more assistance after that, you can give me a call. I'm going to hand over now to Katrina. I'm here with Katrina Hale and today we're going to talk about birth planning and really I guess for surrogacy birth planning we are recognising that the surrogate has usually given birth to her own children before becoming a surrogate and so she'll have her own experiences of birth. In the intended parents may be in the position where they've got zero experience of birth or they may have their own experiences of birth and there may be positives and negatives to that. So I guess my first question to you Katrina is when we're thinking about planning a surrogacy birth Uh, how do we start and when do we start that sort of planning discussion? So I think it's a good idea to, before anybody falls pregnant, to actually check out what hospital facilities are available in the surrogate's local area. If there's a choice of hospitals, go and have a chat to all of them, see whether they've ever done surrogacy before, if they haven't done surrogacy before, you know, what's their attitude towards it? So if you've got a choice, then you can make a choice. Uh, It's also a good idea to decide whether you're going to go through the public system or the private system. And again, check out all those options. Um, In checking those, you know, in in checking out those facilities and and people and services, uh, intended parents can go and have a chat, you know, to see what's available or the surrogate can go and have a chat because you're just getting information from those providers. Uh, once a surrogate is pregnant, then she becomes the legal patient. So uh, that that whole dynamic is going to change then in that intended parents then can't go and ask questions about what's going on. So it's a you know really good idea to get information about what that service would do. How would they handle surrogacy? To just get, you know, it's, it's about, you know, do you get a good feel? You know, do you get a good feel from them? You know, if you've got a choice, you get to make a choice. If you don't have a choice uh, and there's only one facility, then it's a good opportunity to get a feel of that facility. How much work are we going to need to do to get them up to speed and on board with surrogacy? You know, is this going to be easy? They're very open and welcoming and just eager to please. Or have we met people who are telling you that, uh, you know, it's illegal or something like that. And uh, there's going to be a bit of groundwork you need to put in uh, before the pointy end of the journey. Mm. And I think my advice is often that at that point, it's a good idea to ask if there's a patient liaison person or a social worker that they can meet with in person, or at least over the phone to have a conversation about things like, is there a policy in place at the hospital already about surrogacy? Has the hospital dealt with surrogacy birth recently? And is there, um, I guess, a process for them to meet with somebody to discuss their particular arrangement and what they would like from um, the hospital and the care providers involved? And, And the 
particular care providers and whether they have uh, um, experience with surrogacy. Because I know for my own um, surrogacy birth, we went to a major hospital in Melbourne. And whilst they had probably dealt with surrogacy at the hospital, the staff members that we dealt with hadn't. Um, and again, like you say, how much work are we going to have to do to bring them up to speed, educate them, advocate for ourselves? And are we prepared for that amount of energy into dealing with a hospital? Yeah. Um, so when we're talking to hospitals about the sort of care that they might provide for a surrogacy arrangement, are there um, things that you would be looking for in terms of the sort of support that they can provide? The, the, the foundation of, of, of how I approach it is the, you know, the word respect. So surrogacy is legal. So therefore, it, you know, people doing surrogacy, they're doing something absolutely the appropriate and illegal and, and legal. So therefore, the community, the hospitals, you know, the services should accommodate that in a respectful way. Uh, so it's it's not appropriate to approach a hospital and for them to say, oh, sorry, we don't have a surrogacy policy. Our birth policy is this. You know, our birth policy is that the baby needs to room in you know, with the, uh, the, the, bio, with the, the mother, you know, or, you know, the, which would be the surrogate or our you know, birth policy is, you know, there's no uh, men allowed on the maternity ward or our policy is no, only the, the, the woman who gave birth to the baby can breastfeed the baby and things like that. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's your default policy for a typical birth where the woman giving birth to the baby is going to end up as the mum. Yeah, that's a very, very appropriate policy for that, but it doesn't support and respect the needs of a surrogacy group, which is where we have the woman who's going to give birth and she needs to be looked after exactly the same as any other woman giving birth. It's her birth. So, uh, but then she doesn't want to be the mum at the end of it. So we don't want a policy that facilitates and supports that. We don't want rooming in. We don't want her being encouraged to breastfeed. You know, we, we don't want, uh, you know, all those sort of typical things which would be appropriate. Uh, so, yeah, so she needs to be looked after like any other birthing woman. But then we have a mum and a dad or two mums or two dads or one mum or one dad who is, they're the baby's parent. So uh, the baby doesn't have any other parents around. Uh, so they need to be supported and accommodated and looked after and educated exactly the same as any other new parent. So, uh, so the, a surrogacy policy, policy has to recognise those roles. You know, we have a woman giving birth who's not going to be the mum, but we do have parents around. You know, we have a parent or parent who is there and this child has no other one no, nobody else stepping into that role so it's about respecting and recognizing the roles and having a policy that works in accordance with that you know the details of that you know, that's the principles of it uh, there's no there's no right way to do us you know there's no one way no right way no rules uh, for a surrogate birth for example um, you know that the intended parents must be in the room to see the baby born you know the intended parents uh, you know must cut the cord you know it's those things are up to the discretion of the group members involved mm. i think that's also really interesting that when it comes back to respect is that some stories i hear is where the hospital um, thinks that the intended parent should only be there for visiting hours and that otherwise the surrogate should be the one providing all the care to the baby 
and really that shows a lack of respect for the arrangement, everyone involved, but um, particularly for a surrogate who doesn't want to be caring for a baby and shouldn't be forced to care for a baby that she doesn't want. Um, and I, I do think if the hospital and the care providers can get their heads around that, then that makes all the difference. I mean, that's, that's, I see that's one of the sole, one of the purposes of the surrogacy agreement. The, surrog the surrogacy agreement is there to say, yes, uh, you know, this woman is pregnant, um, but she, there is an agreement between these people that the child she is pregnant with is the intended child of the intended parents. You know, this is the, these are the intended parents. So that's where the surrogacy agree, agreement sits in that sort of limbo, sort of go, well, yes, it's the surrogate's pregnancy, but everybody agrees that these are the intended parents of the child. Yes, it's the surrogate's birth, but everybody agrees, this group of people agrees, that these are the intended parents of the child she's going to give birth to. So, you know, that's where the surrogacy agreement, that's one of the functions of the surrogacy agreement to communicate that. Yes, before we got pregnant, we entered into an agreement that this is what's going on. So therefore you should respect and accommodate this. Mm. And I think um, certainly the hospital should have notes on their file about the arrangement so that if you're having to see a different midwife or an obstetrician at each appointment, that they've got that information available. What we did was actually write a, a pregnancy plan, I guess a bit like a birth plan, but it just listed who we were that we said that the arrangement uh, was entered into before I was pregnant. Uh, we told them what we'd like to be called. For example, I just wanted to be called Sarah. I didn't want to be called the surrogate. Um, and mentioning things like expecting that the intended parents would be in theatre if there was a caesarean. Um, and I guess that brings me to the, the points that I talk to people about uh, when you're talking to the hospital, asking questions about whether they will be able to accommodate more than uh, one person in theatre if there's to be a caesarean. Um, if not whether that can be uh, um, discussed or negotiated. Certainly we were lucky that the original response was no, the surrogate can have one support person in theatre. And when we pushed back, we were able to negotiate that actually the intended parents were both allowed to be in theatre. Um, and that's something to talk to everyone about, recognising that both intended parents, where there are two of them, should really be able to um, uh, watch the birth of their baby and shouldn't be shut out in another room unless that's actually what the surrogate would prefer. Um, and then other things to talk about is whether the intended parents will be provided with a separate room with the baby uh, so that they're not having to room in together. Some hospitals can't accommodate two separate rooms, but if they are able, then that would be great. And then the next one is often uh, how do we discharge from the hospital? Because the hospital may ask that the surrogate and the baby leave together and what that looks like if the surrogate needs to remain in hospital for longer than the baby or if the baby needs to remain in hospital longer than the surrogate and making sure that the hospital respects and appreciates the arrangement and isn't trying to force anyone to stay in the hospital that doesn't want to be there and doesn't need to be there, for example, and not recognising that the intended parents are the ones that should be providing the care to the baby when the surrogate packs up and leaves the hospital. Um, Absolutely. Often, uh, if you're going in to give birth to your own baby, um, you know, you, you, you don't really need a birth plan um, because things start happening. The default policy is there, which is going to accommodate whatever happens. So, so I always look uh, when people are pushing back on surrogacy to sort of go, okay, what's this, what's the equivalent of this in, in a regular birth? Um, so a hospital might say, absolutely happy to accommodate you, but the policy is 
the, the birthing woman is only allowed to have two people in the birthing suite. So I'm like, okay, regular birth, I'm giving birth to my own baby. Who are those two people? Uh, those two people are probably going to be my partner, who is also the father of the child, uh, yo, and my next of kin. So we've got three roles in one person. And then I've got a spare slot for whoever I want. I can put a birth photographer in there. I can put a doula in there. I can put my mom. I can put my best friend. You know, there's an abundance of, of support for me. So, okay, so now I'm a surrogate giving birth. Only two people allowed in the birthing suite. Often during counselling, uh, when we discuss that, um, yo, I'll have the intended parents say to the surrogate, well, that'll be us then, won't it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's like, so who, who does a surrogate need to be in the birth suite? So she needs her support person who's not the intended parents, her dedicated support person, who, and that support person also needs to play a next of kin role. Surrogate support person, next of kin, but who else is going to be in the room? Normally, if we've got the person giving birth, who's going to be the mum, we've got her partner, you know, who's going to be the, the dad or the other parent, uh, that's accommodated by one slot. But in this case, if we have the surrogate support person, we've got one slot left. So only one of the intended parents would get to be in the room under that policy. So hospitals will say, oh, it's a health and safety issue. It's, it's, uh, I'm like, okay, so is it a really tiny room? You know, we can't fit more people in it. Uh, you know, that there's only room for two. Uh, and if it's not, then it comes down to an equity issue. How come a woman giving birth to her own baby can have her next of kin, her support person, who's also likely the other parent, uh, in the room with a spare slot. Whereas in surrogacy, we get a support person next of kin and only one parent in the room. Why is there discrimination against both parents being allowed to attend the birth of their child when in a you know, regular heterosexual typical birth, there's not. So it comes down to an equity issue. Mm. The same with the cesarean section. The hospital will say our policy is only one support person in the theatre. Yes, theatre is theatre. People are chopping people open. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a serious issue. But again, if we look at it in terms of equity, uh, who's in the room? So I'm the woman about to have a cesarean. Who do I want in the room with me? You know, my partner, who's probably, you know, the other parent of the child, you know, if it's heterosexual, he's probably the father, is my next of kin, one person, all in that one slot. So, but in surrogacy, if we've only got one person in the room, well, who's going to be in the room? Most likely the surrogate's chosen support person. Again, I see in counselling, when we talk about this, the intended parents look at the surrogate and go, well, which one of us do you want? It's like, she wants her support person. <laughs> you know? so, uh, and then it's a matter of negotiating with the hospital to say, well, okay, so is it a tiny, tiny theatre that someone's elbow is going to bump the scalpel? So if we have more than one person in the room. I've found out that theatres actually have a person capacity. So it's like, well, if you, you throw the five medical students out, we've got room for five more people in the room. So again, it's about equity uh, in, in surrogacy. What's reasonable? How come a typical birth gets to have all those people in the room accommodated in one support person, yet in surrogacy, we're discriminating, you know, in not providing exactly, exactly the same 
uh, you know, situation. Um, so they're the grounds on which I negotiate with hospitals um, in, in all those things. So that's why you need to actually not, you know, that's why you don't have the freedom and the choice to just go, oh, we'll just go with whatever happens. You need to go and explore every single policy point so that then you can just let whatever happens happen so that then if it ends up as an emergency cesarean, you've got who you want in the room. Surrogate might choose to only have his support person in the room. In a you know absolute emergency C-section, nobody's in the room. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, you don't want it ending up with a baby in NICU where the, only the legal parents can visit the child in NICU. So we've got a surrogate in theatre, unconscious. Uh, we've got her support person who, you know, is the partner who's the other legal parent, you know, with her. And we've got a baby in NICU who, who can't have visited. So it's really anticipating every single point of how that birth could go and checking out, you know, making sure that the policy is going to accommodate surrogacy and the needs of your surrogacy at every single point. And again, there's no saying that because we have negotiated that three people can be in the room, that there's going to be three people in the room. <laughs> the surrogate might decide on the day, I don't want, you know, my intended parents in the room. I want them outside. Mm. You know, she gets to make that choice, but you need to have the accommodation. So it's not that she wants three people in the room, but you're told you can only have one. Mm, that's a good point. So uh, let's talk about milk and feeding because there's always questions about this and whether a surrogate will breastfeed, whether she'll express milk, whether an intended mother might induce lactation. Um, what are the rules? Are there any rules about milk and feeding babies? Yeah, uh, like I've, I've sort of heard a few stories um, where intended, intended mothers have induced lactation and they've been told they can't breastfeed by the hospital, that there's some sort of policy around that. Again, if that's, what, if that's something that you're wishing to do, that would certainly be a policy point that I would check out in advance because, again, it comes back to that equity issue. We have an agreement in place that says that this is the intended mother of this child. She's currently not the legal mother, but she is the intended mother of this child. So she's going to be the woman who's going to be providing care and nurture to this child for the rest of their lives. So why wouldn't we, again, equity, you know, why would we discriminate you know, against this child? Why would we deny that child establishing a breastfeeding relationship with the person who's going to be breastfeeding them from now on you know that's not fair to the child you know that doesn't fit within the principles of why you would invest in establishing a breastfeeding relationship between a woman who gave birth to her own child so again it's it's you know it's, it's just the principles of it so uh to sort of spring it on the hospital uh i say there's 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 law there's policy and there's personality so some things are legal you know for instance, you cannot, uh, you, know, you cannot get the name of the intended parents put on the wrist tag, you know, the hospital wrist tag of the baby, because that's a legal medical records issue. You know, the, there's a civil war breaks out, the babies go one direction, everybody else goes one direction, they've got to match up, up at the end with the medical records. So, you know, it has to match up, that's a legal issue. Other things are policy. You know, policy is sort of like, well, that's the policy, that's the, you know, a good practice. You know, that's for health and safety and things like that. Policy has flexibility in it. Uh, then there's personality. 
So a personality will present policy as law. So you've got to work out which one am I dealing with? So some you can push against, some you can't, some you need to you know, go higher, go, go over them. Uh, so yeah, so the breastfeeding one, I don't know if it's law or policy. You know, it's like I haven't, you know, I've only heard a few stories which are, you know, not particularly nice stories. Um, so if it's policy, then you need to, you know, get an exception to that policy, you know, before you start attempting to breastfeed. Um, because if there's a pot, you know, if there's not been made an exception to the policy, they're a hospital. You know, if they breach the policy, you know, and then there's a consequence, uh, you know, then they're legally liable. They just can't do it, you know. So I call it, you've got to untie their hands. So if, if that's what their policy says and they choose to override it, they're taking a risk. So you've got to take away that risk for them so that then they can say, yes, you know, we've got this exception for you. Uh, the only other thing I guess that we talk a lot about is the milk and the feeding. And again, like you say, there's no rule book. There's no right or wrong way to do a surrogacy birth. What do you think about the milk and the feeding discussion? So, yes. So breastfeeding, um, should surrogates breastfeed the baby? Do surrogates want to breastfeed the baby? Personal choice. I would say the majority of surrogates you know, definitely don't want to breastfeed the baby. Um, but then there have been, you know, I, I do know of surrogates who do wish to breastfeed the baby and have breastfed the baby. And it's turned out fine, you know. Um, it's very personal decision. I think it's going to be a decision that everybody in the group's comfortable with. I well. think for my um, experience in, for the breastfeeding discussion, before I was pregnant, I felt very much that breastfeeding was an intimate relationship between myself and my babies. And that whilst I was actually happy with the idea of expressing milk for the baby that I was birthing, I didn't feel that I would breastfeed her when she was born. Um, and actually, like you say, things change right up to the last minute. Uh, I was going to express milk for her, but couldn't get any colostrum out in the lead up to the birth. And a lactation consultant at the hospital said, really the best way to get the milk out is to breastfeed. And we were a bit nervous about that because I think I perhaps was worried that I might be too attached or I might find it distressing to then hand over the baby if I um, was breastfeeding. Um, but we decided we would just give it a try for 24 hours after the birth. Uh, baby would get what they needed from um, expressing, sorry, uh, breastfeeding direct from me. And then I would go on to express milk. And uh, we were all a bit sort of tentative about it, but it was actually amazing. I was breastfeeding her for like within minutes of her birth and then I breastfed for the first 24 hours and was then expressing with the pump and then over the next fortnight I was also breastfeeding her when I saw her because that was easier than using the pump and I can't say that that was in any way negative it was one of the best things I've ever done and it felt like a very lovely warm goodbye we were able to connect and I was very much still able to hand her to her dad's without any problems I knew that she was um, having milk from me because that's what she needed I felt like that was actually my role I needed to provide for her but it didn't cause me any distress in fact I think giving up the expressing milk was more distressing because I felt like I was I was having to finish the journey before I wanted to um, mm. so for the most 
part, I think the surrogate, like you say, many surrogates don't want to breastfeed uh, for lots and lots of different reasons. The ones that go on to breastfeed generally feel pretty positive about it and haven't had any regrets. And it's really, like you say, very personal choice. There shouldn't be any pressure on a surrogate not to breastfeed or to breastfeed. It really should be the team making the decision together about what's right for them. And remembering that really at the end of the day, what's best for baby is actually that they're fed and loved and warm and looked after. It's not about um, who provided the milk at the time. It's what's best for them and what's best for the team. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because women breastfeeding their own children have a whole range of different experiences and attitudes to breast, breastfeeding. Some women hate breastfeeding. You know, they loathe it. You know, some women adore it. You know, it is the the you know the crack cocaine of of, of parenting. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and some 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 women are like, it, well, it's it's a responsibility. It's a duty. You know, of, of what I need to do. It's like, you know, I'm not neither into it or or not into it. Uh, so again, there's the fear around a surrogate breastfeeding a baby that she's gonna bond. You know, she's got a bond with the baby. You know, that's good. Even though she's spent nine months carrying this child and she's birthed this child, it's like that's the point that she's going to get confused, you know, and, and, and go, oh, hang on, I've actually now bonded with this baby and I, and I see myself as this baby's mother and I want to keep the baby. It's like, you know, I don't think it happens like that. I don't think surrogates get that confused that easily. You know, surrogates actually maternally bond with their intended parents. You know, so like you said, it was like, ah, oh, this is a, you know, this is just a sort of continuation of what I've been doing in caring for and nurturing this child. You know, that is my intended parent's child. You know, it's just part of the package of what I've been doing. It's not just like this sort of demarcation zone. Once that baby's out of me, we've got to shut down the shutters. You know, there's sort of this fear that the surrogate is suddenly going to turn into this bonding monster. Uh, you know, yeah, and we've got to, you know, sort of separate her out, you know, once the cord's cut. It's like, you know, she's invested in this child, in this child's well-being. And if that meets this child's well-being, then she's probably going to do it. Um, again, it's, it's, not, it's not so much that, you know, in a birth plan that the policy would be surrogate doesn't breastfeed the, the child or surrogate expresses colostrum or surrogate expresses breast milk or, you know, baby is formula fed. It has to be that all those options are possible, including, you know, intended mother inducing lactation, intended father inducing lactation, if they wish. Um, all those possibilities need to be able to be accommodated so that this baby gets fed. So, um, and then it's very much the, like you said, the, the group decision um, in, in what, what happens. Often surrogates will be... Um, yeah, look, um, you know, I'd really like to express colostrum. I'd really like to express breast milk. Um, and then they give birth and they're just a bit over it. You know, they're a bit tired and they're like, no, sorry, I need my body back. I think I've done enough. You know, baby's safe and well. Uh, so again, there's no right or wrong. Uh, it, it's just what is right for the group and what the surrogate, the birthing woman wants to do at the time on the day. So she might say, absolutely, I'm going to express, you know, for three months and then she can change her mind at any time because she's just not into it. It's her body. That's the bodily autonomy issue. Um, so I think, yeah, with, with all these things, that's why I like to see, look at birth planning with the hospital in terms of principles as opposed to uh, this, is the, this is the way to do it. So there's many, many ways to do it. The same way as there's many, many ways to, you know, do another birth. Yeah. On the 
equity issue, but also related to the feeding, is uh, the information and education that's generally provided to a birthing person and their partner about how to feed baby, how to change nappies, how to do all of what we would call mother craft, but these days should be called parent craft. And often that education is provided to the birthing person, but in surrogacy should be offered to the intended parents. And one thing I think is really important is to make sure that they're given that education about how to uh, prepare breast milk or how to prepare formula for their baby because that information is actually not often available in in breastfeeding friendly hospitals for example the default is to provide support to the breastfeeding person when actually if you've got a couple that are not breastfeeding then they need to be given education about how to prepare formula how to know when their baby is full how to know at what intervals to feed their baby all of that sort of stuff I know for example my intended parents attended a session with a midwife to talk about that parent craft and the midwife providing it was a bit shocked that there was no pregnant person in the room to hear that information they just couldn't get their head around that Um, so it is again about discussing with the hospital about what they can accommodate and why they should be accommodating the the intended parents just as if they were new parents in any other circumstance it just happens that they're not the ones that are carrying the baby at the time exactly exactly and I suppose it's it's like a yeah, this is where the the way surrogacy works legally, you've got to have a really good understanding of it, like what is what it is and what what it isn't. So when a when a surrogate becomes pregnant and you know, chooses her hospital and engages with the hospital and and the staff there, then she is their legal patient. So if she wants information to go to the intended parents, then she has to provide consent each time for that information to be provided uh, to to the intended parents. So again, it would be, you know, to sort of think, okay, so do the intended parents want to attend the antenatal classes? Well, legally, you know, if if you look at their legal status, they are just friends friends of the pregnant person. You know, so would two people off the street who happen to be friends with a pregnant woman be able to attend an antenatal class? Probably not, you know, if we look at, look at that legally. However, again, that's why we've got the surrogacy agreement where it's like, a, no, 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 these, these people are not just visitors. They're just not just friends. They're not just people off the street. They are the intended parents of a child who's about to be born. So therefore, is it reasonable for them to attend the antenatal classes and receive exactly the same support as any other impending parent uh, you know, on that sort of just you know, e- equity issue. Uh, so again, it's like, well, how does that work sort of law policy personality? What negotiations do we need to do? You know, do intended parents want to do that or not? Does the surrogate want to go to those classes with the intended parents uh, so that she can have the excitement of watching them get prepared? Or, you know, do the intended parents turn up to those classes and then what story do they, do they tell to the group of when are you due you know, how you're feeling, or do they talk about it being surrogacy? You know, it can feel quite awkward and intrusive for them. Can they be given private classes, you know, rather than a general class, uh, because they don't want to deal with that awkwardness of having to be in a room full of pregnant women uh, when they're doing surrogacy? So again, no right way to do it. It comes down to the principles of respect and accommodation and equity. Mm. Uh, So the next um, flashpoint that we sometimes see is when the surrogate wants to leave hospital or the baby needs to leave hospital and the surrogate's staying behind, like I mentioned before. And what you say about law policy personality often comes into it. Uh, The hospital will often say that legally they don't want the baby to be discharged separately to the surrogate. Um, On that point, I think 
there probably is some law that they want to rely on in that regard and that's understandable they see the baby as legally um, the surrogate's baby what I've seen done and what we did in our case is, like you say, reducing the risk for the hospital. So we had a parenting plan that essentially said that my partner and I were relinquishing care of the baby to the intended parents and that we were consenting to them leaving the hospital with the baby without me. And that was enough, I think, for the hospital to have something on their file with our signatures on it so that they were reducing their risk that if something went wrong later, they could say, well, they had crossed their T's and dotted their I's. They'd done what they needed to do to hand over responsibility to us for that decision and that was enough for them they just needed that bit of paper they needed to see my signature on it and then they were happy to say goodbye to the intended parents and the baby and continue to care for me because I needed to stay in hospital um, is there anything else that you can see that the team should do to try and manage that in terms of the surrogate being able to leave separately to the baby yeah, well, I mean, I bring in a fourth factor in this one. So we have law, policy, personality and psychological uh, in this one. So uh, because there's, uh, yeah, sometimes decisions are made uh, which appear to be pragmatic decisions. Uh, but when we get to this stage of surrogacy, uh, we need to look at the, you know, the actual consequences of those decisions. Yes, that might be a pragmatic decision, but then the psychological consequences are going to be significant. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's actually like a... a, a complex uh, complex situation so you know who, who's going to stay in hospital at the foundation of it uh, the hospital should you know when we're looking at sort of respecting and accommodating surrogacy they should be well we're going to look after the birthing woman exactly the same as any woman who has just given birth you know whatever she needs and then we're also going to look after the uh, new parents exactly the same as any other new parent so that means you know not treating them as visitors like you know accommodating them so then we've got a birth where everything went well surrogates up and walking hours after birth she wants to go home so baby's baby's healthy and well everybody's happy to discharge you know within sort of a, a few hours then it just comes down to what's the policy you know, around discharge. So if we look at sort of that as a sort of policy legal issue, uh, then everybody sort of just walks out the door together. You know, no one's actually sort of stayed that long. So psychologically though, I would say, uh, if the group is going, oh, it's okay, sorry, it's given birth, she's gonna go home and we're gonna fly back to Queensland with the baby. Psychologically, really, 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 really bad idea. It's not sort of accommodating the, the hormonal transition that the surrogate's going to go through post-birth. So I would say psychologically, that's going to be a disaster. Pragmatically, you know, easy to, easy to achieve. The other situation is where we've got a surrogate who you know, needs to stay in hospital longer. It's been a traumatic birth. Baby's healthy and well. You could look at that one and go, well, well why, does, why don't the intended parents take the baby home where they'd be more comfortable? you know, where they've been set up for accommodated baby and the surrogate can stay in hospital. Again, once we add the psychological factor into that, it becomes very, very different because in those first few days post-birth, that's where a surrogate's going through a significant tra transition and for her to sort of have the intended parents go, bye, see ya, we're going home, while she's stuck in hospital recovering with a catheter uh, is not going to be good for her psychologically. So again, it sort of might be different to what you would do if you're giving birth to your own baby. The other one is where we've got uh, surrogates healthy and well, baby needs to stay in hospital longer. So that's where, you know, we can sort of come into, well, there's the sort of the reasonable psychological period for everybody to stay in hospital. And then there's the additional needs that the baby has. That's where we'd be sort of looking at, you know, the consent form, 
going, look, I'm actually handing over parenting responsibility to the intended parents because I'm not going to stay in hospital for two weeks because the baby needs to uh, and, and things like that. So, yeah, so for me, there's very much a psychological factor that comes into discharge planning. So if everybody wants to discharge early, everybody's healthy and well, and they live five minutes away, or the intended parents are staying five minutes away from the surrogate, or they're staying in the, in the same place, go for it. However, if everybody's thinking that because surrogate's giving birth, her bit's done, and the intended parents need to go home because they're going to be more comfortable, then we're, you know, we're prioritising pragmatics and, you know, and those type of things over psychological needs. And in my case, my intended parents are local. So it was very much mm. saying goodbye, knowing that I was going to see them within 24 hours anyway. So, yes, that makes total sense. We haven't talked about birth photography, but I want to go right back. A few years ago when I was pregnant, you and I had a conversation about birth photography where I thought having a birth photographer was quite a nice idea, probably a bit indulgent. I didn't want to uh, make my intended parents pay more money for things. And we had a conversation about photography and I walked out thinking it's not indulgent, it's actually essential. And we had a birth photographer. It was amazing. But I wanted to hear from you about why you think it's so important to have a photographer in a surrogacy birth. Mm, mm. So <laughs> I can't remember that conversation. So um, yeah, it, it is very much seen as as an optional extra um, and an indulgence and an unnecessary cost. And again, it's it's it comes down to a personal preference. Some surrogates just don't want a birth photographer in the room. Um, sometimes a surrogate doesn't want the birth photographer, but the intended parents do. But the, the, the value that I see in it, which is, you know, above and beyond the whatever it costs, is capturing that pinnacle moment. So when you talk to surrogates, the guiding light, you know, the moment that they are walking, that they're working towards that crossing of the finish line, the gold medal at the end of it is seeing the look on their intended parents face when they see their baby born or meet their baby post-birth for the first time. That is the $50,000 reward, emotional reward moment for surrogates. You know, that's what they've imagined. That's why they're doing it, you know, to see that moment. So that moment is a moment. And if the surrogate's unconscious, if the surrogate's sort of just, you know, recovering from having pushed out a baby, if she's a bit dehydrated and exhausted and she's not quite with it, she might sort of catch that moment out of the corner of her eye or you know she might pass out you know she might not be present for it um, so having a birth photographer there captures that moment uh, that then the surrogate can look at that moment over and over and over and over and over and over again no, no matter what happens in the days and weeks and months and years after it that was her moment that was what she did it for and if you've ever seen those photos oh my goodness you know they are breathtaking photos they are breathtaking photos they're so raw and human and emotional you know so i think for surrogates it's like you know let's say the their intended parents have called them every single day leading up to the birth you know during the third trimester and then she gives birth and they go home and then the intended parents just have a baby that doesn't sleep so they are the sleep deprived new parent zombies who cannot think of anything beyond the next you know five minutes uh and the so therefore the amount of time you know the number of times they're calling their surrogate drops off significantly for a surrogate there's that risk of feeling used and abandoned however if she's got that photo she's got that moment you know she can see th them 
you know, she can see their emotion. You know, I love the photos also where the, of the way intended parents look at their surrogate post-birth, you know, that, that depth of gratitude. You know, it's like where all those anxieties sort of drop away and it's just they've, they've seen what she's gone through you know, for them. Uh, you know, the, 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 how humbled they are by what this other human being's done for them. Those photos serve as a, a sort of a stabilising force against all the other sort of petty relationship life niggles that come up and get in the way post-surrogacy. I think that's perfect and and you're right the the photographs from our birth I would look at over and over again I've got one of them framed on my wall it's one of the most important moments of my life so yeah Mm. having a photographer Mm. I would recommend it 100%. So when it comes to birth planning, did you have anything else that you wanted to add or any advice that you'd have for the teams when they're planning for a surrogacy birth? Yeah, I mean, we touched on it in the beginning was sort of checking out uh, what hospitals and what facilities and what services you have available in the surrogate's local area. I also think where we're going to give birth is going to be close to the surrogate, close to the intended parents. Uh, you know, I would generally think it's going to be close to the surrogate. There's a question of sort of you know, public or private. You know, do we go public or do we go, do go private? Obviously, private is more expensive. So public hospitals, I've seen them do, you know, fantastic surrogate births, um, but it comes down to resources. They're public services. So you can, you know, go to a public hospital and we're talking law, policy, personality. They've got the best personality. They go, look, we've never done a surrogacy before, but we're going to write you a policy. What do you want? You know, but then... They go, yep, absolutely, we would love to give the intended parents a separate room, you know, to the surrogate. You know, that's going to come down to if there's a room available on the day. So, uh, you know, if there's not, if, you know, a woman's coming in in and giving birth and she needs that room, she's going to get it and the intended parent's going to be camping on the floor of the surrogate's room. You know, they've rewritten the policy and they've got great personality, but you're competing for resources. You know, they cannot promise you that they will accommodate everything you have asked for. They're going to say, prioritise saving lives over psychological and emotional needs. So with a private hospital, uh, you know, one of the benefits is you get more consistent staff. So, you know, certainly with a public hospital, because, you know, surrogacy is a bit special, you can ask to have consistent staff, a consistent midwife. You know, can we have the same midwife who's going to be at the birth? Um, it might not always be able to be accommodated. It depends on how that hospital works. With a, a, a private system, you're going to have a consistent OB. You know, they've most likely got, you know, the midwives that they work with. So you're going to have consistent midwives who get to know your team you know, better. Um, So then in terms of resources, it's more a matter of going, this is what we would like. This is what we need. We would like to share a room. Now, I know plenty of groups who share a room and they love it. You know, they they say it was actually really, really good. Or we would like separate rooms. Can we please book those rooms? Uh, You know, uh, we would like three people uh, in the room, in the theatre for a a plan C-section. You know, can we have a theatre that can accommodate that? Yeah, we would like this, we would like that. And they go, absolutely, we'll book that for you. So you have a lot more control and a lot more choice. And it's, you get less personality issues because the OB is the person who is providing uh, work to the hospital. So they come in and they go, my patients want, you know, I want, I need. So a lot, 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 lot less negotiation to get what you want and what you need when you're dealing with, with, uh, with private facilities. The other option, which is sort of like a, 
potentially a bridge for um, you know, a, a public system is to use a private midwife or a private doula. Uh, you, know, you could also do that with, a, with a, a, a private system as well. I think that is a fantastic group. I do not know one group who hasn't used a private midwife or a private doula who hasn't thought it was the best thing ever. Because again, you've got that one person who follows your group, who knows your group, who gets to know you, and who also knows the hospital system. So when it comes down to those law policy personalities decisions, they know which one they're dealing with. So then they'll know whether to push or whether to negotiate or whether to escalate. Uh, and they'll be able to you know, make that happen for the group uh, smoothly, you know, to buy, provide that sort of buffer. Again, is that you know, like the photographer? Is that, is that frivolous? Is that indulgent? You know, it's like it can save a whole lot of pain and anguish, uh, you know, having a private midwife or a private doula um, who can act as that negotiator and that buffer zone for you um, and just create the type of birth that you're aiming for. So, uh, again, the way I see, see it, you know, how do we accommodate the, you know, where, where it fits legally? It's like it's the surrogate's birth, but she wants to give birth to the intended parent's baby. So that's what she wants the birth to look like. She wants a birth where she doesn't end up as the mum. <laughs> so, so therefore, it's like you know, communicating to whoever you're working with, what does that look like? You know, so is, is that an inclusive birth where she wants them sort of you know, rubbing her back? Or is that one where they're waiting outside the room? Or is that one where she's not quite sure? You know, is that one where she thinks she wants them in the room, but then they, they start to stress her out, she wants them kicked out? So no matter what system you use, try and get consistent people, uh, you know, try and get as much um, information and understanding and commitment uh, you know, about what's going to happen uh, at the time and public system be prepared to put in more work. I think that's perfect. And you're right. I've had a doula at all three of my births and having her uh, at the surrogacy birth, we also had a birth photographer who was able to provide some doula support to my intended parents. It was amazing having that backup that um, is not emotionally invested in the same way that we are was perfect. It was really good. Mm. So, and I think, yeah, they, they very much provide, you know, the, the best story I have about a sort of a, a, a doula or a midwife is, is a surrogate who's sort of debriefing with her gay intended parents and partner post-birth. Uh, and she said, oh, look, you know, you were amazing. You guys were amazing. Like, you know, whenever I needed something, you were right there doing it. Yeah, we, we actually didn't need the doula. And they looked at her and they went, who do you think was telling us what to do? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's almost like their, their function I have found is in the almost not being noticed, but their, their presence is actually very important. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Their, their role is almost sort of the guardian of the birthing woman's space. Mm. So, yeah, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And if she doesn't want it to end up as the mum uh, at the end of that birth, then that's their role to make sure that doesn't happen as well. <laughs> that's <laughs> to right. To make sure that there's yeah, the, you know, the intended parents, in, in the same way that a midwife would, would support the woman who just gave birth, who is now a mum, you know, a midwife's role is also to support the woman who just gave birth and the parents who have just become, you know, just been born uh, in the same room. Mm. Perfect. Thank you. We're going to leave it there on birth planning and we'll talk again more on um, similar topics in other episodes. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. 
You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.